Testing one, two, three, how are we doing? Good. Something original like testing one, two, three. I think a man of words would have something more original to test with, wouldn't you? Um, I'm pleased to remind you that uh, beginning on October 7th, we will inaugurate the first dinner theater uh, here in the Great Hall. October 7th is the time of our uh, Every Member Canvas uh, presentation. It's a musical. Um, I guess maybe the jury's out on what the quality of the music, but it, but it is uh, music. The food will be good, so we want you to simply today put on your calendars October 7th. Watch the bulletin for the details, and please call and come and be a part of our Great Hall Dinner Theater beginning on October 7th. Uh, next week we will have maybe just a little teaser, as it were. Um, somebody, how many of you have ever heard me sing? It's well worth the price of admission, I guarantee you. There's a real interesting little vignette on a smaller vignette in the Carol Burnett show a long time ago, back when I used to watch TV. <clears throat> Carol Burnett and her husband uh, in this sketch had a son named Bubba, and Bubba was having trouble at school. And so the teacher called uh, Carol Burnett and her husband in, in uh, this series, her name was Eunice, and his name was Ed. And they, the teacher called Eunice and Ed in because of concern over the child, and the child had done a drawing, and the teacher had done a psychological interpretation of the drawing and invited Ed and Eunice in for a consultation on what obviously was a deep neurotic, deeply neurotic child. And the picture was this little bitty figure in the corner cowering down with two huge parents overlooking this child. So the teacher said, I want you to look at this picture drawn by your son and see what you see in the picture. Ed started first and said, well, it's obvious to me. Bubba's always been little for his age. <laughs> and Carol Burnett said, look at my hair. <laughs> I've never worn my hair like that. Neither of them really got to the heart of the matter because of their own uh, ego needs. Well, uh, during sabbatical, I was asked to lecture about the country a bit, and I went to Seattle for a lecture. And um, I was introduced by somebody who, whom I'd never met before. And he had gotten my uh, resume, my CV, as we say these days, and fashion this intricate, uh, flattering introduction. On those introductions, I always pray for forgiveness for the 
the one who lied and forgiveness for me for enjoying it so much. <laughs> he made reference to me in two ways that struck me and I, on the plane home, kept going on with these uh, descriptions of me by somebody who didn't know me only through rumor um, and reputation as well as what was printed on paper and he described me in two ways one of which I liked and the other which bothered me he said here's a man with the body of a giant and the soul of a poet I really like that <laughs> until I thought about it a little bit and I felt like Carol Burnett and I thought body of a giant <laughs> well I'm not that big <clears throat> okay I put a little bit of weight on during the sabbatical <laughs> body of a giant but the other uh, description he made of me and he was marketing because I was there to speak of sacred spaces and he was head of the building committee and the fund drive for this parish they were trying to save in Seattle. And I'd been brought in as the visiting fireman, the new Moses, the carpetbagger speaker, <laughs> to, to talk about the restoration of historic spaces. And so I gave this speak on, speech on sacred space, but he referred to me not only as the body of a giant and the soul of a poet, but he said, this is a true man of faith. Um, I don't know that anybody's ever said that about me. I don't know that I know what that means, and I don't know whether or not I like it. A true man of faith. I think if I was at a, and being invited to a party, and somebody said, your dinner party partner will be a true man of faith, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to go to the party and sit by this person. <laughs> Good evening, Ryan Pittman McGee. Uh, true man of faith. <laughs> I brooded over that on the plane going home and thought, how does he know that? You know, in the old sense, you don't know me well enough to say that about me. I mean, the fact that I've been a priest 20 years doesn't guarantee that I'm a true man of faith. He's never read any of my writings, which are clearly... Um, questionable in their truth to the faith. How does he know that about me? I know why he thinks I have the body of a giant, but how does he know I'm a true man of faith? So I began to think about that and was brought uh, into my mind a quotation. I have this incredible ability to carry within my brain quotations that I've read, and they're sort of like those Macintosh SEs that have the hard disk, they're in there somewhere, and when I hear something like true man of faith and it applies to me, I begin to sort through knowing I've heard some quotation that would justify that, somehow integrate that, integrate that into me as something about myself that might be acceptable. And so I kept thinking of Evelyn Underhill's quotation, and as soon as I got home, I raced to get it. It is this. He goes because he must as Galahad went toward the grail, knowing that for those who can live it, 
This alone is life. He goes because he must. As Galahad went toward the grail knowing that for those who can live it, this alone is life. If this man meant a blind adherence to an ancient doctrine, the standing memorization and recitation of a historic creed, if he meant one who had memorized and regurgitated for 20 years the doctrine and dogma of the faith, then I am not a man of faith. If he meant one who leads a perfect life, who never makes any mistakes, if he meant uh, one who knows all the answers, if he means one who has never had an ounce of doubt in his mind about his own faith, then he wasn't describing me. He doesn't know me well enough to say I'm a man of faith if that's what he means by a man of faith. But if he means one who goes into life because he must, as Galahad went toward the grail knowing that the only way I can live it is to live life alone and nothing more, nothing less. What is faith? What is the journey of faith? What is this that we talk about when we talk about a man of faith or having a faith? For me, and I can only speak for me, and I don't necessarily today speak for the church, I speak for me. I've been described publicly as a man of faith. There are four qualities of faith. The first is the autonomy and mystery of the source. The second is the priority of grace. The third is individual freedom. The fourth is the matrix of community. That the faith about which I am and the life of faith that I live has the integration of these four, I think, crucial elements. Let's talk about them. The autonomy and mystery of the source. Name the source what you will, source with capital S. What Teilhard de Chardin calls the Omega Point. Mystery, truth, that which is God by any other name. That in my schema of faith, I begin with the premise that this force is autonomous and mysterious. So autonomous that I cannot conceive of this source as never having had a beginning. That this autonomous source is the beginning. 
this autonomous source demands and needs nothing from me in order to be. As contrasted to my dependency upon this source, that without this source, I would not be. My relationship to the primary source is one of dependency versus autonomy. The second and part of that is the mystery of this source that is so autonomous and mysterious that this source may even have the ability to create an illusion of its opposite. For the sake of bringing us in a nearer, more mature relationship. Now that circuitous logic I will underline that circle once again. This source may be so autonomous and mysterious that it creates the illusion of its opposite in order that we might be closer than ever before. I'm talking about whatever we experience God to be has always and everywhere its opposite. And that this primary source may be as autonomous and mysterious as to create the illusion of its own opposite. I say illusion because it appears to us to be the opposite of God, evil that is, when indeed God may be the primary source of both good and evil and in the intricate dance between those two is uh, the maturing, purging human faith journey that eliminates everything from us that will keep us from a relationship with God. Yes, I'm saying that this autonomous, mysterious God may even have what appears to us to be a dark side. This is the incredible mystery, and if I am a man of faith, part of my faith rests on the recognition of the reality of that which seeks my life as well as that which has given me life. That there is loosed within creation an undifferentiated power of that which seeks to disintegrate me. Because it is mystery and because of autonomy, I don't know the source of evil. I do know something of its nature, its process, and its end. Its nature is to be a contradiction. Its process is disintegration. Its goal is nothing. The goal of evil is nothingness. The process is disintegration. This omega point, this alpha beginning point called God, has loosed within creation the clear paradox between that which we perceive as good and that which we perceive as evil. And it may, indeed, depending on our maturation, in this incredible dance between good and evil, it may be that we must be caught continually in the paradox and tension of those two in order to transcend the immature understanding of God that comes with us at every development of our own state, every stage of our own development. In other words, these are mirrors 
reflecting one of the other, and that which appears to us at one stage of development to be against our life may indeed be that which has given us life, and that which we thought was so life-giving is that which is going to consume our life. And so they are perhaps illusions. There is a dynamic in the autonomy of God, and that which was the worst thing that ever happened to me, that took me within a hair's breadth of my own existence, was the very thread I hung by on which I based an entire new existence. That which almost took my life from me that was so evil and disintegrating may indeed have been the fire that purified me, taking all the superficiality, all of the human hubris of self-determination away from me and left me with only the uh, golden essence of myself on which I rebuilt an entirely new existence. And that which was the worst thing that ever happened to me was the best thing that ever happened to me. The autonomy and mystery of God is that God is in charge of that and we are only in charge of making responses. And we see these illusions, these double mirror images of what we perceive to be evil and as we grow and look in the mirror we see reflected behind us that it was the greatest good. To be a person of faith means to go bold and steadfast and unafraid right into the center of the paradox and live there. And to not rest on the broad upland of certainty about either. One of the tenets of my faith knowing this autonomous and mystery, mysterious God is that I no longer, having tried to rest on either end of the teeter-totter of opposites, I no longer rest peaceably on either. A second thing that it's done for me, having now lived uh, some modicum of faith, know that there is not left in me any judgment or blame. Because I know that that difficulty in which one currently exists, though it may to the outer world appear to be destructive, may be a process that this person must go through in order to seek the grail. And in order to seek the grail, they must go through the deep, dark valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. And one must go through uh, the deep, dark journey of the soul. One must live in the belly of the whale. And all of those self-righteous people of faith stand in judgment saying, that is a sinner. And the true people of faith say, Lord, have mercy upon me. I am a sinner. If this man who didn't know me and introduced me meant that I, among all humans, am more aware of my sinful nature than I am a man of faith. The second tenet of this faith that I struggle in, like Vassar Miller in her book of poetry, Swimming on Concrete, 
struggling to be a man of faith. This was cut off right here, so I'm going to put, put in what he said was the second element of faith, which is the priority of grace. And then he picks up where they cut him off. So we'll continue. And that is to say that it all begins and it all finally ends under the aegis, this umbrella and this envelope called grace. It is an absolute priority in the journey of faith. Grace, <clears throat> once again I remind you, is undeserved favor. It is the incredible ability to be given a gift, to receive it, and return it. Grace is that quality of existence that one does not deserve, that one cannot earn, that one cannot buy, that one cannot sell. It is a gift, the gift of life, a free gift, the gift of new life, with no strings attached. It is the absolute, unilateral, unconditional love of God. If one does not have sealed in the forefront of your consciousness, like the sign of the cross on your forehead at your baptism, the doctrine of grace as a priority in the theological formulation, then one will not be a person of faith, but one will be continually caught in the fallacious and heretical assumption that if I follow all the rules, God will love me and reward me. That is heretical. And it is a fallacious assumption which is the beginning of cynicism and bitterness. Idealism is that there would be a cause and effect in the spiritual life in the same way there is in the physical life. That if I do good, follow all the rules, do just like mother and father at home and mother and father at church told me to do, follow the rules, keep your nose and your underwear clean, do only that which pleases the reward for which is approval, then all good things will come to me. I will be rewarded. That's idealism. The opposite of idealism is cynicism. The etymology of the word cynic is a barking dog. And there is nothing worse than the sound all night long of a yapping dog. The idealist is the one who thinks that if I keep my nose clean, the world will reward me. When that doesn't happen, 
this idealist becomes his or her opposite, which is a cynic. And the cynics are one who don't allow any of the idealists to sleep. They yap all night long. Grace says, don't even try to understand it. Grace says it's all mystery. It's all gift. Even those apparent opposites that make us as disoriented as a small child in a hall of mirrors at the carnival. That all of the opposites are gifts. Grace says that even that which is perceived by human consciousness to be evil may hold within it the ability to see grace for the first time. We're adults here, and I am not now a man of faith writing you a prescription uh, for licentiousness, as if I could anyway. You have that. <clears throat> you realize you're free to do anything you want to do. That's a horrible thought. Teilhard, that I quoted earlier, said, human beings will do anything that is possible for them to do. That's a horrible thought. It's an awesome thought. It's a wonderful thought. But, vis-a-vis -vis the doctrine of grace, it may be that until you break mother's rules, you'll never understand grace. I do not write that as prescription, for the cost of that is great. But who among us has not had to rewrite the rules? Who's bold enough to do that? The people who rewrite the rules because they have been calcified and because they are illusions usually aren't invited as dinner guests and described as a man of faith. Tom Robbins, who is the author of Even Cowgirls Get the Blues and a new book entitled Skinny Legs and All. <clears throat> of the body of a giant would include skinny legs. <laughs> says, the only problem with a good idea is it becomes dogma and then nobody will let you change it. Incredible chauvinism of any tradition that says God, this autonomous, mysterious God, has revealed to this particular people at this particular time a truth a dynamic mysterious kaleidoscopic truth and for that community to then take hammer and chisel and etch it in stone and say henceforth and forevermore there will be no new revelation what does that say about those men of faith The dark side, of course, of dogma and doctrine is fascism. 
fascism says you can only think one way in this place or you have to leave. Who among us has not had that experience in the church? The problem, you see, with this autonomous, mysterious God who has loosed these opposites upon us has created illusions to where that which came into being by the grace of God under the ethic and doctrine of love is the many times, the one place that we experience not love, but rejection and judgment. Uh, people say to me from time to time, the church has created an incredible amount of guilt. I don't agree with that. We create our own guilt. What the church has created is shame. I think guilt is functional. It emerges out of us and it says, this is what I experience myself to be. This is what I want to be. My journey of faith is to move from here to here. Guilt is just that gap between what we desire to be versus what we're able to be. And we see nothing but a concrete path on which we must swim from what we experience ourselves to be to what we want to be. And that's a journey of faith. It's not the memorization and resuscitation of rules. It's a desire to become what God wants you to be, come whence it will, cost what it may, even if it means breaking the rules. I refer you to a quotation from a well-known man of faith. Was man made for the Sabbath or Sabbath made for man? The rule was you couldn't heal or pluck grain on the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sometimes there is a new wine that just simply burst the old wine skin. It cannot hold. Those are the things that evil fears. That's a hard is that graceful regeneration of newness uh, that breaks out from time to time in the human soul and in the community. And when that happens, old wineskins get broken. And for too long, every church that's come into existence has seen itself as the steward of old wineskins rather than the creator of new wine. The priority of grace is to recognize that since Christ, it means that we can begin again at any time. Behold, there is a new creation. God has done a new thing. Creation did not end in Genesis. It continues. There is a Christogenesis. Grace means that even if we make a mistake, we can start over. Even if we have been destroyed down until we are within a hair's breadth of death, that that thread can become a rope, which is called hope that we hang on to to establish and create a new fabric of existence. Grace allows that to happen. Grace says there are no God-forsaken places and there are no God-forsaken people. Grace is so inclusive and so abundant 
that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds more. And there is absolutely no power in heaven or on earth or in the kingdom within greater than the creative power of this autonomous, mysterious God who has implanted God's self within us and continues to regenerate us. And that is grace. If you're going to be on a journey of faith, you must know that there is an autonomous, mysterious God who may appear to us as paradox and caprice. I just don't understand. That's the beginning of faith. And that grace is the priority of the journey. If you don't have seal in the forefront of your consciousness grace, you will not have the power to continue to struggle on this concrete ocean. The third is a freedom of response. And that is we are free to not respond to grace. We are free to live as beloved infidels if we choose. The absolute incredibly joyous thing about creation is that we have a right to go to hell if we want. If we didn't have that ability uh, or freedom, then we would simply be automatons that are directed and ruled by a large puppeteer in the sky that pulls our strings. <clears throat> but the fact is, with the umbilical cord, when it's cut, we're free. And we can respond to life as we choose. A man of faith says, I am not a victim. I have choices. The most depressed people I see are in two categories. Those who feel like they have no choice and those who feel like they have too many choices. A healthy person says, I may choose. They're not to blame. I'm not a victim. If any of you today here in any vocation in which you exist feel trapped, it means you're in a place you don't need to be. You're free to leave. You can just go. Oh, I know the costs. That's part of the incredible rhythm of things. It is costly to be a man of faith. So now we've rubbed a little of the veneer off and we see the patina of grace that says it only comes through the hard way. You're free to stay, you're free to leave. But you're not free in faith to be a victim. If there's any fault here, it's not theirs. There is no fault, just responsibility. That's what that word means, the ability to respond. And you're free to respond. And I would support your right to go to hell all the way to the edges. I will not enter therein. Because your response of faith 
is no response unless it's a choice, a free choice. And you better know what you're getting into. You're not getting into a very clear path that has all of the footsteps outlined for you that you will follow. You are to begin to worship and relate personally to an autonomous, mysterious source with the priority of grace, and grace will only come through the hard way. It is the serendipity that emanates out of the striving. And that you are not a victim anymore. If you're a person of faith, you are where you are because that's where you choose to be. And if you don't like where you are, it's not somebody else's fault. Your job your vocation, your relationships, your religion, whatever it is. You're there because you've chosen to be there. And if it's terribly painful, if it's debilitating, then you better pay attention and ask yourself, why am I here? fourth tenet of this journey of faith is the communal matrix, and that is to say that this faith is personal, but it's not private. And that individuation that comes in the spiritual journey is very different from individualism. Individuation is not done in isolation. To become a person of faith, to become that which you were created to be, to try to begin to bridge the gap between what I experience myself to be versus what I feel called to become, grace allows us to make that movement. Choice means that we will move freely, but we will do so in the power of those who support us as we journey together. The narcissist says, the world was created for me. The person of faith says, I was created for the world. And I will live within it in relationship with others because there is something about being within a relationship or a community that the sum of the whole is greater than the parts. And you cannot transcend yourself unless you have an authentic relationship with another. Individuation is not done in isolation. It comes out of the matrix of a community. A community is two human beings who confront one another seeking what they have in common. On the basis of that, a community is established. You must be in community. The elementary community would be uh, a relationship with another. Now, as we struggle to understand being a person of faith, it doesn't just mean memorizing the catechism or being able to recite the creed with your eyes closed. But it means doing, as Evelyn Underhill says, 
He goes because he must. As Galahad went toward the grail, knowing that for those who can live it, this is life alone. Faith is not a segment of life. It is life itself. All of it. Every bit of it. It is not simply reserved for the sanctuary. And to be a man of faith means to be a warrior. To be a woman of faith means to be a birther and journeyer. And each man of faith needs to be aware of the woman within. And each woman of faith needs to be aware of the man within and integrate the two out of the matrix of community and make a whole. But it is a fight. It is a struggle. I end with one of my favorite quotations from William James. And if this is what that man meant when he described me as a man of faith, then I will take the mantle. William James says, if this life be not a real fight in which something is eternally gained, something eternally gained for the universe by the success, then it's no better than a game of private theatricals from which one may withdraw at will. But to me, he says, it feels like a real fight. If this life be not a real fight in which something is eternally gained for the universe by success, then it's no better than a game of private theatricals from which one may withdraw at will. But to me, it feels like a real fight. And if to be a man of faith means to be in a real fight. I am a man of faith. Amen.